Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Dean Burnett is a behavioural neuroscientist and in 2020 was busy writing a book about human emotions. But events in that year changed his life and also radically changed the book he was writing. The book is called Emotional Ignorance. Dean, good afternoon. Afternoon, John. Uh, now, th- back in early 2020, the original book you were writing about emotions, could you give us a rough outline of what approach you were taking then? Oh, yes. It was going to be a uh, very sort of fun and straightforward. Um, I was going to do like a chapter about all of the, the main emotions, you know, your fear, anger, um, <clears throat> and sort of you know, disgust, uh, happiness, you know, the usual candidates. Mm. And I was going to sort of do a chapter about funny examples of each and the science and um yeah, and wound up the victor of this emotions work. Everyone's happy. And yeah, so I sat down to write that and very quickly became apparent that that's nowhere near uh, how the science works. And in fact, most people, what I thought was established science and simple subjects were mind-bogglingly complex and really, really nuanced and diffuse and variable. And scientists don't even agree what emotion is at the moment. So the idea that there was like an established set of scientific principles was laughable and I'd already agreed to write a book about them. So that was that was worrying for me. Yes, because I, I suppose there's a tendency in science to, to describe everything, but, but, but emotions included as kind of functional things, whereas mm-hmm. they don't seem at all functional to the person who, ex, who experiences those emotions. Oh, yeah, totally. They are often disruptive. You know, they are very powerful and influential, but confusing and cause you to behave and act and think in ways which are unhelpful. Um and that was a sort of big part of uh, well, the, the, the book I eventually ended up writing. Like, why? What, why do we have these things? Why do they do this to us? Where do they come from? What was like the evolutionary purpose behind us experiencing these things? And those questions became far, far more interesting and salient to me as uh, what I was going through was unfolding. Mm. Uh, and to describe for the listeners what you were going through, this was obviously early 2020. Uh, the pandemic had just hit... Uh, and it affected several members of your family, but particularly your father. Yes. Like, obviously, at this point, I had um, sort of done two or three drafts of the book I wanted to do, and it just wasn't working because the science just wasn't what I thought it was, and my whole idea was wrong. And I was on the verge of telling my publishers, look, this isn't going to work. Um, I can't do it, uh, it's, uh, so we have to think of something else. But then, as a pandemic hit, and um, well, my immediate family caught COVID quite uh, quickly, but uh, my father was one of them. The others recovered, but he uh, got progressively worse. And this is in March 2020, and eventually admitted to hospital. And um, in April 2020, succumbed and passed away from the virus. And I say it was a ex- extremely harrowing time for me, emotionally traumatic in many ways. Because like he was 58, he wasn't unhealthy, he was totally unexpected. He wasn't like sort of long decline into illness and like that. And um, he was doing a lockdown, the strictest of lockdown. So I couldn't see him i couldn't speak to him i couldn't be there with him he lived in a different city like 40 miles away from me and uh yeah i, I was I, I got to say goodbye to him uh, on a whatsapp call which is not how i wanted to do it with a 20 minutes notice as i was stood in my kitchen in my pajamas on a saturday morning and it was uh, you know incredibly deeply emotionally uh distressing time and uh, even after he'd passed and even then you know dealing with that but in lockdown, so I was denied all of the usual mechanisms we have to help people cope with grief. Like I couldn't be with friends, family, and loved ones, and I couldn't even have people over to help me with you know, just general daily 
life stuff. You know, when people come and cook things for you or take care of your kids for a bit, so you can have some alone time to process. Because obviously, lockdown, I have two small children. They needed me. I couldn't you know, succumb to my grief. So I had to just power through, despite that not being the healthiest option. I couldn't have a proper funeral for him. I couldn't, I couldn't even go out and just get away from it all. So, yeah, all I had to do, the only thing I had was the opportunity to write about what I was feeling and what I was going through and trying to unpack it with my neuroscience knowledge in this very unique situation. So mm. that's the book I ended up writing. And yeah. uh, I, I think it's better for it, but, you know, if I'd, I'd rather not have gone through that. But if I did, I'm trying <laughs> to make the best of it. The, the, yeah, and, and, you know, the, 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 the wisdom, I don't know if it is wisdom or not really, about the stages of grief, is, is there something to that? Or, and do they come in the order that they're supposed to come in? Yeah, the, uh, so the five stages of grief, the whole denial, acceptance thing, it's... <clears throat> The, the original model of that is actually makes a lot more sense when you look at it. It, it just says that you know, grief normally has these five particular um, aspects to it: you know, denial, anger, grief, fear, acceptance, and you know, that sort of stuff. But it doesn't say that they occur in any particular order. And it doesn't say that everyone has the same, uh, you know, that goes through the same thing in the same structure. And some people have go through only two stages. Some go through three. Or some go through one, then two, then three, then one, then two, repeatedly. So you know, the, the, the scientific model for stages of grief is a bit more uh, understandable, but it's just it's one of those things where the mainstream has picked it up and sort of interpreted it and simplified it to the point where now people say that <laughs> like the, you go through five stages of grief, and when you've, in, everyone goes to the same ones in the same order, and when you finished it, your grief is over, like mm. like you like you've won a Mario Kart or something. Like you, that's not quite how it works. It's uh, no, it's a uh, grief is incredibly complex and nuanced and personal process. And the idea that everyone has the same time scale or the same like route through it is you know, is is a very very uh, misleading one. And not maybe not intentionally so, but it's sort of been adopted like a lot of sitcoms and stuff like that. So yeah, so it, it, the original model of grief makes more sense but the the mainstream distortion of it less so yeah and and when you i mean because it was such a shock obviously that but but when you were uh, when you were going through your grief was it a help to an extent that you were able to maybe take a slight step back from that and observe yourself and see how this related to the work that you had been doing i wouldn't say it was a help but it was absolutely vital for me it was um i got much further because it was the only thing i had um it was the only thing I could do at that particular time to take my mind, not to take my mind off it, but to channel it somewhere. Like I say, all my usual, all the usual options you have for processing the the grief were off the table because of lockdown. Um, again, a policy I agree with and still agree with, but it didn't make it any easier. It certainly made it a lot harder for me and my family to do it. But again, I was in a very, very unique situation of, yes, I've got you know, this sort of terrible emotional load to bear, this is trauma I'm going through, but I've also, you know, spent 20 years as a neuroscientist now, so I have the ability and the knowledge to perhaps decipher this, to understand what I'm going through, and also the opportunity to write it down, to sort of channel it somewhere, to, you know, to express it. And that's one thing I did learn is that the parts of your brain which sort of produce emotions and process them and integrate them into your, you know, your existing systems and neurological makeup, those are the same parts which express emotions. So the, you know, the the feeling and the expression and communication of emotions is a really big part in dealing with them. Uh, because I didn't have much option to do that personally with other people, um, being able to write about it, I know, as much detail as I liked, was, was, a, was a huge benefit. And 
I say, kept me from you know, kept me from the edge in uh, in my darkest times. Yeah, do emotions make sense then? Because oftentimes it seems like at least some of our emotions aren't that useful, really. And especially, you know, if you're in intense grief a lot of the time, you're kind of bouncing around between different emotions. Yeah, it's, um, they don't make logical sense a lot of the time, mm. uh, from a purely objective, reasonable stance. But you know, most of what the brain does isn't logical. It's not, you know, it, 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 our brains didn't evolve to be a sort of completely robust, rational thinking engine. Their main purpose, you know, everything the brain does at the most fundamental level, is to keep us alive and keep us functioning, allow us to interact with the world. And you know, most of our history, just thinking logically and rationally, wasn't a good way to do that. So if you can imagine, like a primitive human, like see a tiger, one of them goes, "Ah, yes, I see there's some sort of beast approaching towards me now. Is it coming closer? Does it want to be my friend, or how do I know? I don't have enough information to work on here." And the other one goes, "Ah, run." They've got fear. That one survives, and that one just stands there thinking about it until it gets eaten. So you can sort of see how your brain would evolve to prioritize emotions. And emotions, obviously, are the precursor to rational thought. Like a rational thought evolved out of that. So they are our way, our brain's way of interacting with the world and responding to it, based on the limited information we have. So they have definite uses and functions. But when you combine that with our ability to think and rationalize and predict. Things get murky and things get confusing. So, like our brains are so advanced now, we can imagine a situation where something bad happens. But emotional systems, which are linked to it, don't know the difference between that and a genuine threat. So, we experience negative emotions for things which might never occur. And yeah, it's sort of like when you um, install like the latest operating system onto an old laptop, which isn't quite capable of handling it. You know, you might get something working, but it's going to be clunky and it's going to be issues, and that's sort of where you get all these emotional problems coming up because we live in a complex world where emotions haven't evolved to, to recognize nuance and detail, mm-hmm. and we're still coming to terms with that. The, uh, uh, so, but specifically then, in, in terms of grief, is, is what a grieving person goes through an attempt by the brain to somehow heal you? Yeah, it, it pretty much is that. Yeah, I mean, there can be times when it, it's too much. You know, there's, there's this thing in psychiatric circles of um, it's a diagnosis of like chronic grief, where you can't move on, you can't you can't process the the trauma you've gone through because of the circumstances in which it occurred, or how your loss happened, or how close you were to them, and how much of a you know, how dependent you were on them in life. So there, it can be too much, but usually uh, the closest analogy I can think of is like when you have a virus. You know, you start you know, experiencing aches and fevers and your nose runs and things like that. These are all unpleasant things. But these aren't the virus, technically. This is your immune system. This is how your immune system is dealing with it. It's like, I've got to make things hotter to process, you know, to get rid of the bug more. I've got to clear out your system. I've got to generate more mucus to remove these things. It's it's your body sort of responding to the, the problem in ways which are unpleasant but necessary. And that's a lot of where, you know, grief particularly, that comes from. It's like, you know, you've experienced a terrible loss and you need to be able to react to that appropriately. You know, your brain's gone through, you know, you have this way of thinking of the world with this person in it and now they're gone. And your brain has to really sort of reassess and reappraise and reset and reconfigure itself. You know, your mind, your expectations, your emotional states, your attitudes, your predictions, these all have to be overhauled. Mm. And especially if someone really close to you, like a big part of your life and your and your way of thinking. We are such social species that those closest to us are a big part of our mindset. And losing someone like that, it's almost like losing a limb in the psychological sense. And you need to learn how to 
do without them. And that takes time, you know, like physiotherapy. You need time to you know, work out how to function again. And grief is sort of your way of doing that. So you've got the powerful negative emotions of, you know, this is bad. I don't want this to have happened, but it has happened. So I need to deal with that. Also, there's an argument that it's a way of stopping you from trying to go on regardless. Like, as in, it, it's debilitating, yes, but that's because you need to stop. And so we give, you temporary, give your brain time to figure out how to handle all this, what you've gone through. So like, that's why emotions can be so overwhelming sometimes. It's like your subconscious mind putting the brakes on and saying, stop, you cannot keep going when this has happened. You need to have time to reconfigure, which is why it was so difficult when I didn't have that option, you know, and other people didn't as well. So, yeah, so you can sort of see it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a necessary process. It's just not a pleasant one. Yeah. In, when you said that you got that phone call uh, and you had only 20 minutes to prepare to say something to your father and, you know, they told you it would be the last time you'd speak to him, is it possible to find what are the right words for a, a conversation like that? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I did find the right words, but I don't think I was ever going to. So, you know, there's also a certain part of your head which thinks, is that really, is that really all you could think of to say, you know, but... um but, you know, challenge anyone else to think of something better in that context. And you know, he was on a ventilator at the time. He was completely unconscious. I don't know if he heard me. I will mm. never know. Because, like, you know, I said those words to him, but I don't know if he it was any was perceptive of them at all. He was, you know, he was gone to the point where these were going to be my last words to him. So I just came up with something which I thought that he would like to hear. I told him he did a good job because I know he was, you know, very conscious of trying to be a good father and despite all this, you know, he had many flaws and stuff like the humans do and you know, told him he's a good man, told him he did a good job and he, you know, he can be proud of what he achieved, which I stand by completely and, um, you know, I would love to have said more to him and figured out to do it but even if I could have thought of those words you know, in the time I had in the emotional state I was in, I'd have to, there's also the awareness that I wasn't just speaking, you know, I was speaking to my father, my unconscious father, whilst a emergency room consultant, so intensive care consultant, was holding a phone to his ear. So that consultant was hearing everything as well. You know, this should be a one-to-one moment, if nothing else. But yeah. this poor doctor had to sort of do this. Oh my God, how so many times he did it that day as well. Mm-hmm. And enough respect to him for for being able to do this and just maintain a calm detachment. And it's a it's an incredible skill. But and that, that adds me off the context too. But my my kids are in the next room. My wife is sort of rushing them away while I have this moment. And you know, it's these are all things which you. I didn't. I, I never really predicted what it should be like. Speaking, saying goodbye to my father last time, but you know, you have some vague idea that'll happen one day, and it was never going to be like this. But uh, you know, it was the situation. I had to just endure and do the best I could. That's all anyone can ever ask of us, really. Yeah. The name of that book is Emotional Ignorance. Doctor Dean Burnett is the author. Dean, thank you very much for speaking with us today. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.